0: Okay, so this moment of gratitude goes to Kelsey Panera and the sweetest little baby bump that is on its way. So Kelsey is a colleague. She's another SLP who lives here in Virginia and she's new to my local area that I live in now too. And she reached out and said, hey, I'm new. I love PFD and AAC and tiny humans and sounds interesting, but do you want to meet for lunch? And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to have an SLP friend because like, I don't know anybody in Stanton. And Kelsey, thank you for meeting me and being truly just a ray of sunshine and a light. And you're going to be the best boy mom ever. Remember, tuck it down, then put the diaper on. Otherwise the pee goes everywhere. But I I'm so grateful for your kindness because I was feeling very lonely and isolated from SLPs because I hadn't (laughs) basically talked to another SLP since we moved. (laughs) So thank you for your kindness and inviting me to Panera. That was so much fun and I can't wait to do it again. So there it is. Thanks. (laughs)
1: So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig
0: brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Okay, y'all, I absolutely love today's guest. Her inner light just radiates. And she exudes kindness with her confidence. Also, she's just like naturally beautiful too. So there's that. But like, she's genuinely a wonderful human. And I am so honored that we get to spend Dysphagia Awareness Month with the almost Dr. Rachel Arkenberg. She's like so close. <laughs> but like, when you're on the other side, then you get to come back and I get to formally introduce you as the doctor. But we're we're talking about something that is vital to keep our profession moving forward, and it's about getting PhDs. It's about getting your doctorate because the standards as they are, we need that in academia, but also we need this. We need souls that... Love asking the questions and then deep diving into research to find the answers, but then ones that want to carry it back and listen to clinicians, and it's it's this beautiful circle, and and we need that element that is a huge part of our evidence based triangle, and I am so grateful that Rachel has come back on. Is this your third? I've lost track. Okay, oh my gosh. It feels like it should be your third, but like she's coming back on and we just love her. And so, yay. Also, she did bring her sweet baby girl to Asha and I got like to smell her, <laughs> which is but like, I love how babies smell. And I got to oh, meet yeah. you home. Oh, yes. And so all the things. So hi, how are you?
2: Get us caught up to speed, honey. Oh, well, thank you so much for your super kind introduction. I just... I am honored to be here again and so excited. I love getting to talk with you anytime. And so this is great. Yeah. So I am hopefully in my last year of my doctorate at Purdue University. Um, I am a speech pathologist and worked in a medical setting and then came back to school in 2019 and have been working on my PhD ever since. So I'm getting close.
0: (laughs) Yes, I feel like they should add like an extra P to PhDs earned in the pandemic, like pandemic, (laughs) like pandemic PhD. But okay, but
2: also super amazing mom life. You said she's eating solids. Can we talk about that? (laughs) Yes, it's been the best thing ever. So my my research, which this is maybe jumping ahead, but I'm studying starting solids, and I have a little a little human starting solids in my house, which is great. She's just thrilled to be eating and sitting at the table with us. And, and it's the cutest thing ever.
0: Oh my God. Uh, I told her before we started, I was like, we were, you know, talking about how quickly it flies by. And I was like, and we've hit the stage where it's like Nerf gun battles. (laughs) how we have a rule, no nerf gun shooting in the house. So we went running out the door. And because Rocky, you know Rocky Garcia, right? Rocky uh-huh. was like, Michelle, she's like, you gotta get a Nerf gun and shoot him back, right? <laughs> so like we we got mommy a Nerf gun. A little too good of a shot. I definitely took out Bear's carotid artery one time oh, and like, no. but, like so we were running out of the house earlier this week and it was like close contact and Bear got excited, trigger happy, and he shot me right in my tootie-ta. and like oh. I got it. And he was like, Mom, I hit you in
2: your vagina. And I was like, one, don't ever say that word again. Two, it hurts so bad. Like I can only imagine.
0: Yeah, so, like, I mean. Uh, I think they need to make moms armor
2: sets like like coats for like close Nerf gun combat. Yes, <laughs> yes, totally. We're at the we're at the grabby phase. So breastfeeding is a whole new challenge now. Oh
0: so. um, yeah. Oh, I remember that. That hurts. Yes.
2: Especially one day at I, a time.
0: Yeah, and then they get like a little hangnail. Like oh, oh
2: gosh, the little fingernails.
0: Yep. Oh. <laughs> yes. Nope. Nope. I. Mm, I just had some core memories. I wish we'd just (laughs) go far, far away. (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. Okay. All right. Well, then let's roll into it because we have covered a lot of ground, but can you kind of take us to, um, and I know we talked about this a little bit when you were first on, but like what made you want to be a speech pathologist? And then how did you hit that shift into pursuing a PhD?
2: Yeah, I think it's always so interesting to hear everyone's journeys to where they are in their in their careers. So, you know, originally when I was much younger, I wanted to be either a teacher or a doctor and kind of as I explained last time I was on, I found speech pathology and just fell in love with it. So that was, you know, I was planning to be a clinician, I wanted to work in the schools and then I went to Purdue and just fell in love with pediatric dysphagia. I went to a couple of great seminars. I took Dr. Malendracchi's dysphagia course. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to be a medical SLP. I'm going to work with kids. And that's what I did. I was really blessed to be able to start in that area right after I graduated with my master's and I was working in inpatient and outpatient medical settings, you know, the NICU in outpatient peds. And I, and I really loved it, but I was getting frustrated as many of us do about the lack of evidence. So I felt especially in the NICU setting, you know, I was trying to do the best that I could by these babies and I just didn't have all the information I wanted and when I looked to the literature, I couldn't find it there either. And so I had maintained contact with Dr. Maladrocki and kind of had the door open to talk about a PhD back at Purdue and so I started talking with her and she had some projects that were working with kids that were really interesting to me. And so I you know thought about it, prayed about it, talked with my family and decided that that was going to be the next step going back to kind of try to add to the evidence of what was there from a clinician's perspective.
0: So folks, when we're talking about evidence for what it is that we do, we need to Put this in reference where the evidence for pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders is, to borrow Dr. Melandrecki's phrase, it's still in its infancy. Like, we're still, I mean, it's so fresh. So, a lot of what people are doing, if they may not have that firm of a foundation for their individual treatment methodologies and treatment approaches, which is why we need people that have a question that want to pursue this to do this. Also on that note, you know, I've totally frozen the video feed to accentuate two double chins and I'm <laughs> into the distance and I'm like, Oh my god, that's great. And Rachel, Um, you're just literally gonna have to look at my face like that for the remainder of this because if I go to it's gonna crash. But hi, they okay. Uh, We're gonna eventually have to take my old laptop here in for a tune-up, but I don't know when that will happen. We'll add it to the to-do list. Okay. So when you say you were frustrated by the evidence, like what specifically, like what question did you have that like sense you there? Because my first, we've got to do more and we need to do better was the vibrating of the faces and everybody was telling me that we had to wake faces up. And I'm like, they're awake. Like how much more awake can they be? And that's what started me, That honestly, that kind of eventually gave birth to first bite. So not a PhD, but it led us down this rabbit hole.
2: So what was it for you? Yeah, that's such a great question. There were like, So many things. It was every day there was something new, you know. Um, I think definitely like the vibrating faces was something for me as well. (laughs) Yeah, there were a lot of people doing things that just didn't make sense to me, and I couldn't find the evidence to say yes or no. It it made sense, but based on physiology, it didn't make sense. So, I mean, that's that's one aspect. But the thing that really like the question that I had was actually a little bit different. It was related to the relationship between feeding disorders and communication disorders. Because I would see these kiddos in the NICU, and then I would see them follow up and outpatient, you know, months later, and years later, and would see all this co occurrence. And these weren't kids like with syndromes where we would expect them to have disorders in both domains. And that was actually the question that led me back for my PhD was trying to look at the relationship between swallowing and speech and language. And so that was kind of I, like I said, I had many, many questions, but that was the one that I really couldn't find anything on and that I was knew I would be able to work on it here at Purdue.
0: So the question that I have, that if we're going to speak it into the universe, I want to know the role of AAC and PFD treatment. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like how to, because I use them intimately in treatments because the children that I see have both. But how, how do I do a better job with that? And I don't I can't find it. And that question is too broad. That question is you have a question, but then when you go to do a research project, don't you have to like
2: super narrow it down like to like a nanobyte in comparison? It's been so interesting. You know, I think so many of us clinicians have so many questions. And then the PhD process is really teaching you how to be a scientist. And that's so different. And I think your your point is. Something I'm still learning all the time is like, so, you know, we have these really super interesting questions, and then how do we actually get reliable information to help us answer them? And often that is like taking 15 steps back (laughs) and making it very small and measurable. And that was initially very frustrating to me because I was like, no, I have these big questions. And it's like, and thankfully in, in your PhD, you have a group of mentors, and they all, you know, over and over again tell me okay, scale it back, scale it back, scale it back. We have to start somewhere and then you can build. But yeah, you're right. You have to make it a much smaller chunk to start with. Yeah.
0: Michelle Theron, Dr. Michelle Theron, she's out of Florida State University. She talks about AAC, but she talks about making friends with AAC and like play, how do you play? And then she was like, like, but you can't just research like, play is too big and so she had to like whittle it down to these tiny little and I was like but the way she described that because it was just like but like the combo of those two yeah no we're this is one day that's why when you pitched this idea to me I was like this is perfect because I my soul needs to hear this again but I only know academia from the world of in the perspective of undergrad and grad school right so like I don't know what, what does it actually look like to get a PhD in dysphagia? How different is that?
2: What a mind shift is it? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And one that I, I like definitely didn't know how different it would be going into my PhD. And I have like since learned that because I think like so many of us SLPs are so motivated to learn more and we're very like oriented toward, oriented toward excellence and achievement. And, and so a PhD can kind of feel like a next step sometimes when I hear people talking, but I think I've come to think of it as kind of just a different path. So they work together beautifully, but it's a very different kind of training. So like I said a little earlier, it really is a scientific degree. And so you're, you know, using all this clinical information you have, but you are at the end of the day, learning how to be a good scientist. So it's kind of crazy because, you know, thankfully I still do get to spend time in the clinic and work PRN, but like my day-to-day work looks much more similar to my biomedical engineering husband's work than <laughs> it did to like, you know, my mom who worked in a school and what I thought I would do as an SLP. So yeah, it's a totally different focus. And, and I think um, I didn't quite realize how different it would be, but it's all in service of our learning and profession. It's just that, you know, like I was saying before, you have to learn all these scientific skills to be able to answer our clinical questions. And so it's a lot of um, background work before you can get to the really good stuff. So
0: in, in the world of our fields, I know that there's clinical science doctorates, there's SLPDs, then we have some that pursue educational doctorates, and then some are the PhDs. And the way it was explained to me was that in academia... In order to like, you have to have so many terminal degrees in academia according to like accreditation standards for faculty, right? So that's the PhD and a certain amount of like educational doctorates, but like at like smaller teaching schools, but at the same time, we have a lot of SLPDs and clinical research degrees. And I've had that explained to me because I've asked these questions, right? Like, where am I going? And they talk about like how those degrees are more for clinicians that want to engage in research, but it's a far different than a PhD, which is a researcher that like wants to maybe engage in clinical, is that like
2: a fair? Am I butchering that, Rachel? Like, where are we? I think that's consistent with what I've heard, and I have to, you know, to be honest, I didn't go down a lot of routes exploring options. I had done research before; I knew I liked it, and so you know, I didn't really explore the SLPD or EdD. I just went for the PhD. So, you know, I may not be the best person to explain the difference. I will say that in the PhD process it definitely is the scientific training is the primary portion and then you can use that scientific training toward clinical questions toward other you know i know people with PhDs who are in clinical positions and it doesn't completely limit you to academia but it is geared toward like scientific research i'm at an R1 research institution which there's different kinds of universities and that one is is very research focused so you know my PhD experience is always through that lens of, you know, I'm at a research institution and I'm being trained in research. And so there is definitely variation in different programs, but that's my experience.
0: Okay. So R1, I had not heard of the difference between a teaching institute versus like an R1 or an R2 until I went into faculty. And I was like, I was playing along and nodding. And then finally I was like, um, Dr. Burns, I don't know the words that you're using in this moment, you're going to have to translate for me. (laughs) She graciously agreed to explain like an R1 is like the highest level researching facility,
2: like program, right? Yeah. It's interesting like you said, there's a whole different world in academia and I didn't know anything about that going into my PhD and I'm still just kind of beginning to learn about all that. But yeah, an R1 is there's this thing called the Carnegie classifications, basically how they classify universities. And R1 universities are, like you said, the most research intensive, and there's like different specifications for that. So I think they have to have like a certain number of research-based degrees. They have to spend a certain million dollars of research on research every year, et cetera, et cetera. So different institutions meet different like qualifications, but often those R1s are going to be your really big schools, like, you know, places that have the budget for that. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yes. I went to smaller schools. We were a little more intimate. We were we were not there, but you know, we made it.
2: <laughs> you know, I did my undergrad at a teaching institution and I think every type of university has a important place. And I have, you know, I absolutely loved my education at the teaching university. So they're just different purposes, I think, you know.
0: Yes, but like, that's just it. Like I To be fair, I'm the oldest of five. And so like I actually got my associate's degree first because there was no money for college. And so I didn't want to go away to a big school for those final two years because that was overwhelming and it ain't like overwhelming for me. And so a small teaching school was perfect for... So folks, if you're listening to this and you're thinking about your doctorate, like those are heartfelt conversations that you need to have. One of the other thoughts that I had was, and I, I toured like a couple of years ago in between babies. No, I was pregnant with bear. I had this wild idea to go back to school and get a PhD here in South Carolina at the University of South Carolina. But I was like pregnant with bear. And what made me think I could do that with a two-year-old or an almost two-year-old and pregnant? Like, that's insane. I'm, God knew what he was doing when he said, this is not the time. But I had a lot of questions about like, what do the different years look like? because in my mind i thought a phd on paper would be like like the masters like you take these classes and then you have this rotation um each mm-hmm. semester and I'm sure that varies wildly according to PhDs. But could you talk about like what your experience looks like? Because honestly, I really do want to go back, Rachel, but I'm scared I'm going to death I'm gonna be up until midnight every night. And I am too freaking old for that. So
2: <laughs> help. <laughs> yeah, I'm very happy to share kind of my experience and 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 I think your insight is absolutely correct that I certainly thought it would be more like the master's program and then was kind of surprised by how different it was. So yeah, I'll kind of walk through my experience. And like I've said, I'm a, I'm at a big research institution with a fairly large PhD program. So there's a pretty established kind of path that we take and and this will vary wildly by institution. But if you're interested in your PhD and you're listening, these are like questions to ask and like things to look for in their PhD handbook. So for my experience, when you start your PhD, you are going to be taking some classes, doing some research, maybe doing some teaching. And the interesting thing is instead of having like in at least my master's, you know, you have a list of classes and you take these classes your first semester and these classes your second semester. For the most part in my PhD program, it's been basically there are a few required classes that you can take over the course of several years, but most of the classes are anything. So it's like, what classes do you want to take to serve your research? I'm
0: sorry, like you get to design the program kind of because that sounds like it sounds like an a la carte buffet. And
2: I'm like, literally hanging on the edge of my seat. Yeah, I mean, there are some requirements, like I had to take a stat sequence, you have to take statistics. And I had to take a minimum of three statistics classes. So like that's a mandatory one and a tricky one. Like that was definitely the hardest piece, even though I like math. And I had to take grant writing and scientific writing. So there's some like basic classes that you have to take. There's no necessarily like it's not like you have to take this in fall semester of your first year, but there are those kind of standards. And then after that, yeah, it was pretty much all a carte. I could look at classes in our department and actually I had to take a lot of classes in other departments just because they want us to be well rounded. So like I took a class on human motor development in kinesiology that was all about infant gross motor learning.
0: Oh my Um, god, amazing! Oh my god, that's so jives now because that was what we talked about the last time. How,
2: Rachel? Oh, So it's really it's really cool. I mean, I took I took a class on human nutrition across the lifespan in nutrition sciences, and I took a class on family structure and how family structure influences health outcomes. So it was, yeah, it's really neat that you can take, and, you know, some of my peers are taking classes on, you know, neurophysiology of aging and gerontology, and we can take classes across the university, even in the med school. Really, whatever is important to our learning, those can be those elective classes, which most of my requirements were electives.
0: So are those requirements at, like, like a six, seven hundred, or like a seven, eight hundred. Like, how does
2: that work? So, at our university, I believe six hundred and above is what some of those, most of those requirements are. And so, you take a lot of seminar classes. It's a lot of like, you know, for me at least, a lot of classes with five, ten, fifteen people in it. You're doing lots of discussion. So, I really loved taking classes as part of my PhD. And I was really excited to finish that because it was like, you know, another check mark. But then once I did, I finished my coursework in the first, I think, two years. And then I was like, wait, I don't have it. I can't take any more classes. It was kind of sad. (laughs) I I would have been sad then too, because I love, yes. Okay. Your kind of first few years you do, at least for me, I did most of my coursework in the first two years. And that was, I mean, I did have the pandemic in the middle of my PhD. So I definitely did more classes earlier because I couldn't do human research. So I was just like, I'm just going to load up on all my classes, get them all done in those times when we were not able to, to have subjects in the lab. And then throughout that whole time, you're still doing research. So I have in our lab, we always, as PhD students, work at least 20 hours a week on research in our lab. Okay, so the twenty hours a week—what you say you do research, but like in my head,
0: I'm imagining—I mean, this is terrible. But you know the Muppets that didn't really talk, but they just beeped and pretended they were scientists. So when everybody says they're doing research, that's where my inner brain goes—is the Muppets going with the beakers going beep beep beep?
2: So like, yeah, help. <laughs> Yeah, so I can give you kind of a like day in the life in the lab. And this is going to really depend on what type of research someone's doing or what their lab is like. But for me, you know, I am in a lab with a good amount of undergraduates, a wonderful PI, Dr. Melendracchi, who's very involved. And so we kind of go through different PI, Is she a private, like, I know who Dr. Melendracchi <laughs> is, but it sounds like private investigator. And like that takes a whole nother spin on Dr. Melendracchi. <laughs> I, I forget sometimes and use all this jargon, which I apologize. I try very hard not <laughs> to, but when I start talking about, you know, my day, it comes out. So PI is um primary investigator. So the, the lead investigator.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Now I kinda <laughs> see her in a Carmen San Diego outfit, and now that's amazing. So like please please
2: tell her that she's officially Carmen San Diego. Dysphasia Carmen San Diego. <laughs> amazing yes okay so she's the primary pi okay yes so um I we have a lab space and so i you know if we're in a season like right now for example i'm preparing to start data collection so i'm trying to get everything ready to start collecting data on this project and so i am you know writing protocols. I'm uploading things to like a file sharing sites to make sure that all our collaborators can access them. I'm like trying out different softwares to see if they'll work. Um, I'm ordering equipment, you know, lots of kind of random things. And then once people start, you know, participating in the study, I'll be doing Zoom calls with families or having people in lab, um, collecting data. And along the whole way with all of this stuff, We also have a bunch of undergraduates who I'm training and teaching. And, you know, so right now, like we haven't started the project, but I want them to know how to analyze the data before the data is coming in. So they have a bunch of practice data that they're working on. And so, you know, I'll set them up on a computer and be like, okay, teach them how to do the analysis and then they'll practice for a while and I'll come back and check. And um, so it's just kind of a lot of little things that add up to big things. Um, And then we'll go through seasons where it's a lot of, you know, I just finished up a bunch of projects. And so for a while I was doing a lot of writing. So it was like, I've already collected all my data. So when I say I'm doing quote unquote research, what I'm really doing is sitting down at a computer, looking at my data, graphing my data, writing about my data, reading um, a lot of reading to try and put it all in context. Um, So it's a pretty um, varied like day, um, but it all is kind of in pursuit of those projects.
0: Right. So you were talking about sitting there and then you're reading and you're absorbing like a ridiculous amount of how to write. So are there like journals or resources for like how to
2: write these data samples? Like that's a very novice question. I'm slightly embarrassed. I don't know that, but. oh, that's a great question. I think it's actually a really complicated question. I, um, improving my scientific writing has been one of the things that like has been the hardest of my PhD because there isn't a whole lot of like, this is how you do it. Um, so I'm blessed in that I am at a university where they have a scientific writing course in our department. So a legendary researcher in, um, DLD, Dr. Larry Leonard teaches that class and he's been, I don't know, NIH funded and a professor for years and years and years and years. And, um, so, we're lucky enough that we have that class. But even with the whole class, there's still so much to that goes into writing a scientific article. Like I am a great clinical writer. I am very um, you know, descriptive and I can write a narrative quite well, but communicating scientifically is a whole different skill set. And so that has been, you know, a challenge. And and this is where um in the PhD, the mentor mentee relationship is super important because they're the person who's going to be really helping you with that. So like Dr. Malandraki is the one who looks at all my writing, gives me, um, all my edits and advice. And, um, you know, over the years I've gotten better incrementally, but she still has lots of feedback and, um, That's what really helps you grow is that mentor. So that's why you want a really great mentor who will help you with that, because you definitely need a guide because it's it's not a straightforward process to learn how to write scientifically, for example.
0: I've gotten feedback that my writing is too emotional and I'm like, well, I'm not writing scientifically. My purpose was to be emotional in my writing, too. But like. We just took on a project, which I don't know if they'll be approved, but we submitted um, a couple of journals to the Journal of Speech, Language, and Hearing Science for pediatric dysphagia in the public schools, PFD and oh dysphagia. And the Hasn't been updated in 14 years. And Dr. Goza was like, let's do it. And I'm like, right? So we did it. But um, the feedback at, at every turn has just been so overwhelming, but I... Have never been trained, so like that's huge, but it also having a mentor folks, if you're listening, don't just seek out a mentorship for one aspect of your career. Find mentors for different aspects, Dr. O'Donohue at James Madison, who was retired chair there, like I reached out to her um back early earlier this year and was like, I need help learning how to engage with my distance ed students better, because that's hard, like to create buy in when they're, you know, just talking into a computer, but like, there's a mentor for this. So
2: yes, and I think an aspect that makes a PhD really different than a clinical master's program. So like in your clinical programs, you all, you have a cohort of people and you're doing similar things. And I mean, you have lots of maybe clinical supervisors, but in your PhD, at least in my experience, um, you're, you aren't you know, relying as much on the other PhD students, it's really you and your mentor. And um, they're the ones who are kind of guiding you through every step of the way. And that can be um, really wonderful and really challenging. I think every single PhD student I know has, you know, the their mentor becomes a super important person in their life. And it, it can be tricky because, you know, they're busy and you're busy and, and they're kind of in charge of your progression the whole entire way. And so you want to have a a mentor who you can work well with. And I think when we think about applying to master's program, you're applying to a program, but when you're applying for a research doctorate, you're really applying to a lab or a mentor. So the, you know, university may matter less than the individual person that you're going to work with, because they're the ones who is going to, who are going to be you know, teaching you about research, helping your writing, um, showing, teaching you how to mentor, um, giving you access to things. And I, um, I think that's something that is one of the most fundamental differences is that, you know, yes, you do apply to your PhD to a certain program, but whether or not you get in at that program is really just going to depend on your mentor. And and if you, you find a mentor, you want to talk to the mentor, um, and they may, you know, you may like them, they may like you, but they may not have space in their lab. And that's nothing, you know, nothing you could have done that, to make yourself a b- better candidate. It's just a matter of like resources. And and so that's a really different piece of the application process is it's really all down to what that mentor has resources for and whether or not you guys are a good fit together.
0: Dr. Norman gave me advice when I was starting to look and she goes, yes, you want to apply, but first hold the conversations with the labs yes. because you don't want to go through the in-depth application process if they don't have, or if they know the funding's going to run out. Mm-hmm. Or, And I was like, I, I was like, where is this information? Like, is there like a secret handbook on how to get a PhD? And she was like, no, we just... You just pass
2: it along and I'm like Yeah. And that's why I'm glad we're talking about this because I think it is really hard to know where to start if you if someone's thinking about it and doesn't have a connection, which is where, you know, you think about access and equity and stuff and Yes. Like I am, have the extreme privilege of my dad has a PhD. And so he's the one who told me find a mentor, like, and I would have had no idea. And so, you know, that's why I wanted to talk with you so that we can kind of pass this type of stuff on to other people, because it is a, it is a confusing world and there's a lot of politics and a lot of like, you know, do's and don'ts. And, and I think like, this is one example of something that I never would have known if it hadn't been for having an in kind of having a dad who knew, who knew this.
0: Yes. Yes. I mean, this is, I mean, my parents have their college degrees, but they were the first in their families like to actually obtain that. But like, this is a privilege, but like you have to then forge away and then pass it on, (laughs) on, pass it along. Okay. So then how, and this is like, and please don't feel obligated. Wait, I just lost my mouth to answer. Like, like the personal details on this, but like one of the things That I got feedback on was, and for us, it's been, okay, but we have a mortgage payment and we had two children in daycare. And to be fair, daycare in Columbia, South Carolina literally cost more than our mortgage payment did, which is a whole nother conversation on equity that I don't have time yes. to go down, but um, I think humbly daycare should be free and it should be well-educated and well-funded. And that's a way to keep women in um, out of the workforce. And I'm just, I will go there and then digress. But how, how about like the budgeting? Like, is there funds? How is it paid for? Cause that's, that's a fear that's that's a huge unknown for a lot of people
2: yeah I'm no, I'm so open about this and happy to talk about it I know a lot of people are not but um, I think if, if we don't talk about it how can we ever pass yes. off you know, how can people do this because it matters okay but also aren't you like this came up I oh now we got you got me
0: fired up this came up in class the other night where the students were like one of them called me Ms Dawson I was like please just call me Michelle because you're gonna be a colleague in like three months but what they don't, they're not given advice on like a competitive salary for a CF. Why, why do we not talk about that? Because men talk about it. So why, because I have a two D talk. are we not allowed to talk about competitive starting
2: salary? I'm just going, okay. And I think we do need to talk about, about money and I, our field is not, is not great at it. So I'm happy, I'm happy to start here. <laughs> yes. But so, something that coming from, you know, knowing people with PhDs, um, some, and a piece of advice I was given was you should never pay for your PhD. You should only go do your PhD if it is paid for. That's kind of the expectation. And often, I mean, you are working for that. So for example, um, I had a fellowship for my first part of my PhD. And so that was when I applied, they submitted all my stuff to the whole university and I happened to get selected. So that was a wonderful gift that I, you know, had my first couple years paid for with a stipend, um, and it was just a fellowship. Most, I would say, people um, become research assistants or teaching assistants, and in that way, you are working in order to, you know, have a stipend and pay for the PhD. Um, but I don't know anyone who's paying out of pocket for their PhD. That that really is not the model. Um, and so that's something that if if a place doesn't have funding for you, I was given the advice of. They don't have funding for you. That's not the place for you, <laughs> um, and sure. and so I think there's a bigger conversation to be had here that a lot of universities are having right now about what is fair funding. Because I'll be completely honest, I think I took a thirty or forty thousand dollar pay cut to come get my PhD, and so um, you know, and and it's not like I was making a crazy amount of money as an SLP. It's it's a pretty I feel very blessed that my PhD has been paid for and that I am being paid, but it is a very low salary compared to a clinical SLP. And I think that's a big barrier of why we don't have many SLPs in our field is when you're able to make a good salary to say, okay, I'm going to take a huge pay cut and go back to school full-time. That's a really, um, just many of us don't have that option. And I, um, my husband and I were both working on our PhDs at the same time. So because we had dual income. Um, and we had already bought a house. Um, we had already bought a car. So, so that was a, and we live in the Midwest, which is really reasonable. And all those things made it feasible for us financially. Um, but I think that's a conversation that universities are starting to have and and our profession needs to have is if we need people with PhDs, we need to be able to afford to get our PhDs. Um,
0: and that was ultimately, it was like, okay, you could do this, but one, it wasn't in a field of research I was passionate about. because It wasn't in dysphagia, which is, um, nor anything close to AAC. So if it has nothing to do with that, that was, that was a barrier. Um, and then two, um, with bear on the way, like knowing that our daycare expenses were going to jump by six, $700 a month, like we just, and the south is not um i mean it's less expensive to live than like for say like parts of virginia but but at the same time like this is Also, folks and editors, please don't edit this out. In the course of um, Rachel's and I's conversation, the um, lenders just called about like the pre-approval on the mortgage. And I was like, Rachel, I love you. We have to take this call for two (laughs) seconds. So the first half of this lecture had a whole lot of edits in it to celebrate life.
2: (laughs) And she's given me grace. So thank you. Of course. But those would have been impossible. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, I, we had our first child while I was doing my PhD, am doing my PhD, she's six months old now. And, and we live near family intentionally, because we are not paying for childcare. Um, And there are new things where like, for example, now I'm funded by the NIH, and they do have a childcare grant that automatically comes through my fellowship, which is which is wonderful, I, I and it's definitely it's a new thing in the last couple of years, and I think there's increasing awareness now. The childcare grant um, is not anywhere near enough to cover what daycare would cost here, but um, it is a start. And I mean, Purdue also has every semester there's childcare grants for grad students that you can apply for, and um, so so the people are starting to talk about this more, and and it is. Um, on people's minds. But it, these practical reasons are not kind of extraneous to the PhD process. I think they're really central because if you can't afford to go for a PhD, like if you can't afford to live, you're not going to do it. And, and I think, um, yeah, we, we need to really be thinking about it and talking about it. And it's not wrong for all of you listeners who are thinking about your PhD to um, be asking those questions and um, looking for that information because those, those are really important as you're weighing your decisions.
0: So then what about the ones that have families? Because I know I've talked to colleagues that already, whether they have their own biological children or they're raising someone else's, or they are taking care of um, aging parents because that, I mean, you could be, you might have gotten your humans out of your tiny nuts or tiny humans up and gone. And now you're, you know, I don't know, just turned 40 and contemplating the next step in your life. But when there's those those variables, I worry about on my end the time and the age in my career, like and that's that's a very candid, honest raw. Like I want to work another twenty five to thirty years. Like that's my goal. I'd like to retire by I'm seventy. Um, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I can't imagine not being a speech pathologist. God help us all. My mother, they're like she cannot. We we attempted me being a stay at home mom for the pandemic, and I think I repainted every room in the house at least twice. So like, <laughs> it's not good. It's not good.
2: But how much time does it take, like truly, to get a PhD? So that's a good question, and unfortunately, I don't have a great answer. Um, <laughs> that sucks. It really depends on your program and your mentor. So um, for example, I'm at a research institution and I'm going full-time. It is absolutely a full-time job, maybe more than full-time. And um, with the pandemic and maternity leave, you know, I'm probably gonna, it'll be about five years total, but I've been working full-time in it for most of that time. Um, Now I know other people who have had programs and mentors that have been willing to do part-time Work and that's and that's what what really comes down to talking with that mentor of is this realistic and for a program like I'm in um, it just wouldn't have been realistic it really is a full time load for multiple years to get done and and I mean the good news is I'm not going into debt I am being paid to do it so it is my job um, I'm just making less money than I would be in the hospital um, so so it's you know things to consider but it is it is a um, large undertaking. And I think talking with your mentor about what's reasonable, I know I talked with Dr. Malandaki at the beginning of, you know, okay, what time frame is, do you think is reasonable? And, you know, is there, what kind of flexibility do we have all these things? And, and we set that out at the beginning. And I think it's been really helpful and accurate for my situation at my university. So that's the conversation to have with those potential mentors is, you know, could I do this part-time? Could I do this, um, you know, over while I'm working. And and I think a PhD in particular, it is hard to do part-time because it's designed to be full-time in a lot of places. Like for example, at my university, it's absolutely, I think every single one of us are doing it full-time. Um, but that's not the case for everyone. I know other people who have different different um, schedules and so it can be done. Because,
0: I mean, I, I enjoy working full-time.
2: So that's... And I work
0: multiple part-time jobs that somehow add up to a several full-time job. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> and it's so funny when people are like, so, so what do you do? I'm like, well, which day of the week are you yes. asking about? <laughs> Cause like that's a different Like yeah. this day I do this, this day I do this. But that to me has been a concern. Also the trickle over after hours, like with families, like that, there's a hard stop where you have to be able to walk away and be present. And when I was a grad student, there was no trickle over. Like it was, it was late night hours studying on the weekends for hours. So like, is
2: that still a thing or is that, is there a better boundary there? Well, I would say that's super personal. The PhD, one of the really nice things about it and not nice things is that it's like ultimately flexible. So there's no like, you know, like I said, you're choosing your classes, you're making your own schedule. Um, You are, it's kind of up to you. If you want to like power through and finish faster, you can, if you want to go slower, you can. And so like, for me, um, I, because I worked between my master's and PhD, I was like, I do not, like, I need my evenings and weekends for family. And, and so I, I set a pretty hard boundary for myself that like, I'm going to work working hours and then I'm going to stop. And I think the tricky part about the PhD as opposed to the master's is the, in the master's, you have a to-do list of, you know, doing this soap note, studying for this test in the PhD, my to-do list never ends. I mean, it is like years long to-do list. And so you have to. <laughs> <laughs> terrifying. I know. And, and like, literally some of my things are like, okay, work an hour on this thing that is due in 18 months <laughs> And and so the timeline is very different. And and so you are the one who's determining what you're working on. And so I kind of made myself a boundary that like, okay, this is these are my working hours. And of course, there are times in the PhD when we're in a really heavy data collection season where there might be weeks where it's like, okay, this child is flying in from Texas who has CP and they can only come on a weekend. So like, I'm going to work that weekend. Um, and that's like a decision that I've made. Um, but on a week-to-week basis, I really try to keep it in working hours. And I think some people do not. They want to, they work 80 hours a week, and that's how, what they want to do because they want to finish faster. And I've just decided I want a life. And so I'm going to try and keep those boundaries as much as I can. Um, and, of course, there are seasons where I can't. But most of this, the past few years, I really have only worked during working hours.
0: Send that vibe my way <laughs> as I'm presenting tonight And honestly, I think two to four nights for the last three or four weeks, I've been, like, scheduling meetings after hours at, like, 8 o'clock at night. And But, like, 8 o'clock, I can, like, tuck the kids into bed, we can do family prayers, and then I can, like, (laughs) hop on a call. And I'm like, we're so close, just a little bit more. And then we're on the other side of this volunteer
2: project. And, uh uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's, and, and that is the beauty of the PhD is it's very personal, but that's also, it matters who your PI is and what they expect of you. So that's a conversation to have with them as well. That's and good advice. advice. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But also your person cares about people being as a human. Yes. And that's, that's huge. The amount of love that she emanates oh, is yes. just, yeah. Hmm most excellent. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm going, um, because Rachel is this phenomenal person. She gave me the most detailed outline for today. And it's like, it's like goals. I wish I was this organized as I'm sitting over here looking at like all of, uh, uh all right. Your current research what can we, what I know you haven't like totally published and like we're, we're there, but what are you doing? Because, you know, it is dysphagia awareness month and this yes, is
2: yumminess. <laughs> the exciting part about getting further in the PhD process is you get to do more of what you're interested in. So at the start of the PhD process, oftentimes you're working on things that are already ongoing in your lab so that you can learn things, right? So like, you know, coming onto a project and learning the methods and observing and taking on portions of it. And then when you get to your dissertation, that gets to be more, what do you want to do? And so, um, yeah, I am starting to work on a project on kind of the question that I said brought me to my PhD. So I'm looking at um, the relationship between um, feeding development and communication development in infants. So um, like right as they're starting solids and starting babbling. And so I, you know, Am am just starting that, so I don't have any data to share with you. But it is exciting. I've worked my um, previous projects were in older kids, kind of learning the methods, and and we found that in seven to twelve year olds, there are um, some links between language skills and um, feeding and swallowing skills in typically developing children and in kids with CP. And so now I'm kind of taking that back to a younger age range, Um, but the The data that we have, like I said, I've just finished a whole season of lots of writing. And so that hopefully should all be being published relatively soon. And um, what we found was that even though kids use different amount of muscle activity for speaking and swallowing, they do some of the same patterns. So like as they do more complex tasks, like for instance, um, you know, chewing a giant pretzel rod, something a little more challenging Or repeating a whole sentence, that's a more challenging task. Um, They use more muscular effort in in the same way for speech and swallowing. So they may use different amounts, but they're showing these same patterns um, as the tasks get harder. So that was kind of my last project and really interesting. How did you measure the muscles? Uh, so we used surface electromyography, which are the, these little sensors that go on muscles and they measure electrical activity. So when your muscle fires, there's a electrical burst. And that how is did the- they not eat them? I'm so sorry. My mom mode. I'm like, but how did they not get the, like, how did you, how? Well, okay, We were working with older kids. So they were seven. So yeah, um, and they were like, we put sensors right around their lips and then on their submental muscle region. And so we did lots of coaching and they got to f- touch them and put, see them on a little stuffed monkey. And um, so these are the things in research that you learn. Like, how do I get children to not mess with $1,000 sensors? Um, <laughs> I, I want to take that class. Okay. <laughs> so, so you asked what I do on a daily basis. So some days were, okay, how could we put these sensors on? And yeah, lots of problem solving. But yeah, we found some really interesting results from that. So um, that's going to be being published here soon. And um, then, like I said, I'm going to be doing a different type of study, but also looking at communication and swallowing in those littler kids. So I'm excited to see what we find.
0: So I want to learn more about the evolution of mastication and how that ties in with cognition.
2: Mm, yeah.
0: Because there was some research, and I think it was published in Dysphagia a while ago, um, from Dr. Reva Barwelly. She's the woman that created Savorese, those transition crackers. So she partnered with a woman, I think it was at a University of Washington or University of Oregon. I'm butchering this. But they specifically looked at mastication and food preferences for children with Down syndrome. And it was it was really, really fascinating how the preferred food group was like a smoosher, like a, Uh right. Yeah. Y'all can't see I'm like making the face while like, like the, the, um, the different eating style. And so that was what they found, but it made sense. Like on my end as the clinician that have worked with a lot of patients that have down syndrome and they prefer that like it's level five consistency. Um, what they found but then they they were talking about the evolution of mastication and cognition and they broached on it but like it didn't deep dive there but I'm kind of like but that makes sense that you gain mature mastication patterns when you're like school age not in our infancy that it makes sense that you're gonna have a cognitive growth
2: there because you're starting that's a whole nother stage of cognitive you see what I'm saying oh yeah and I think that's a super interesting question I think what you- you said just kind of highlighted kind of the nature of research of like they looked at that specifically in one population in down syndrome and i think that's kind of like what we're have what we talked about earlier of like dialing your questions back it's like we may be interested in like okay i want to know everything about the development of mastication but like where are we starting and oftentimes looking in one population or in just typically developing kids is a place to start cuz it gives you a mechanism a physiology you can look at okay we know these things about down syndrome we know you know, we can easily identify these kids because they have genetic markers. We And so then you can make a study, and that's kind of the first step. And then the next study maybe is a different population or is typical development. And it, it's a research is a very, um, you have to be very patient because the rewards come much longer. So, you know, for your idea of looking at cognition and mastication, it mm-hmm. might be like, multiple studies over many years to try and answer that one question. Um, But it's worth it, and that's why we do what we do. Okay, so then what about the first one about feeding an AAC? What if we were to look specifically
0: at a neurodiverse population and their access to a robust communication system on a speech-generating device and how that positively or negatively influences their um, multidisciplinary caregiver-led caregiver-driven,
2: child-led feeding session, right? Yeah, it'd be super interesting. I mean, I I can, because I'm being trained in this now, I have a million questions of what outcomes are you measuring and what- I know. Are kids and, but I think that's a wonderful place to start. And that's why we're, like, we were talking about mentors. That's where you need that research mentor who can look at that question and be like, okay, here's the nugget of what you want to learn. And now how are we actually going to reliably measure that in which kids in, you know, and and- the years of experience really do help. Like, you know, I I come up with so many questions in my committee, because in your PhD, you have a committee of multiple people looking at your stuff. And, you know, I have a kinesiologist and a nutritionist. And obviously, Dr. Mount Draki is a speech pathologist, and I have a statistician, and they each come at the question from different ways, and are like, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? And that's really how like, I'm learning to ask the right question. And so that's what That's why you do go to school to get a PhD because it's like, there's so much to learn and think about and it's exciting, but overwhelming. I'm taking this
0: all in and like, okay, but we could do this. Another idea I have is what about the language that happens at the busy juncture points on a playground? I mean, we talk about like communication boards. That's a part, that's a step, but like having communication in the moment and like, what if all playgrounds were universally accessible, but when we say that universally, like take into account also like our friends that have um vision and um hearing deficits I- I'm gesturing towards my ear a little bit of anomia today, but like, yes, <sighs> you you just get me so excited, I'm all ignited, yes, okay, I feel like there's more on here that um what walk away. When somebody walks away at the end of today, what do you want them? And they're like, I am frustrated about this act at work. I heard, um, Louisa Ferrara. She's on the committee. She was doing a presentation on C. She's, um, sorry, Rachel and I are on the PFD committee together. Um, but Louisa is on and she was doing a presentation at ASHA on CPAP and like why, her body of research and what she has garnered says we don't feed infants and toddlers and children that are on CPAP. Right. And her counterpart was someone who felt differently. Right. But um, yes. So not touching that with a 10 foot pole, we will have, um, I'm going to ask Louisa when I build up the confidence to come on to talk about that. But she also was somebody at some point in time was like, no, I got to go back and get my doctorate. So like, What is your pearls of wisdom if somebody's on the fence right now?
2: Yeah, I would say, um, my, my big takeaway is like, I wouldn't think of a PhD as a next step for a speech pathologist. I would think of it as a different path and, um, it's super interesting and, you know, important and we need people doing this research, um, but i think learning as much as you can about the process and about the the reality of it is important as you're considering so talking with a mentor looking at financials um thinking about all these different elements of your life is my biggest pearl of wisdom is that you know this isn't just like a masters 2.0 it's a very different animal so it's it's a different way of thinking and and it really is scientific training and so if that's something that you're interested in Talk to a mentor. Talk to several mentors. Visit their labs. Um, you know, read PhD handbooks on people's websites. Those really tell you the architecture of each program. And just um, try and get in conversation with people who have done their PhD, are doing their PhD, and um, try and to help you determine if that's really the right fit. Because there's lots of ways to be involved in research, and and the PhD is, I I would say like a very scientific way of getting your own scientific training. But if you want to be involved in research, I know in our lab, you know, we often need clinicians for portions of our projects. And so that can be a way to get your foot in the door and kind of see, okay, do I really like this? Am I really interested in this? Um, So yeah, just talking to those mentors and people in the field and academia um, before you dump all in and dive in, I think is a great place to start.
0: Excellent. So what are you going to do when you graduate?
2: That is a, a great question. <laughs> um, <laughs> when I when I came into the program, I was convinced I was going to go back to the hospital, back to the clinic, um, maybe do clinical research. And then throughout the process, my my favorite part has been teaching. Um, I really love teaching and mentoring students. So um, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but I could see myself um, being a professor at a teaching institution, um, supervising, doing. Um, a variety of things. I think I'm not sure what that is going to look like, but I definitely want teaching to be a part of it.
0: Beautiful. And a lab, head your own lab, whether, I mean, maybe not like, I yeah. mean, but you have so much there and it'd be so awesome to watch you teaching <laughs> and then having them in the lab and like guiding
2: that. I feel like, you know, God has opened the door each step of the way of, I never planned to get my PhD. I never planned to do any of this. And it's like, each step got his shut doors and open doors. And I, and I really believe that's that all each step of the way I'm going to, I'm going to know what comes next. I don't know what five years from now looks like, but hopefully I'll know what the next step makes sense to be.
0: How I get that in my soul. <laughs> yes. uh, oh, my friend. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Wait, love money. At the end of every episode, we talk about a little bit of love money. That's what my grandma called it. Love money or mad money. So if somebody is listening and they have a little bit of love money or mad money laying over at the end of the month, where do you recommend that they could donate to
2: or um, share? I mean, I think feeding matters is the first one that comes to mind. Um, I work with pediatric feeding disorder. And so, you know, they have done such great work with, Advocacy with um, support for families, and I think that's a wonderful place to start. Another one um, that's as a scientist very near and dear to my heart is Dysphagia Research Society. Um, that's really the premier scientific group studying swallowing, and so um, donating to that group enables scientists like me and my mentor to keep doing the projects because we can't do these projects without, you know, funding or places to publish or conferences to go learn at and. Um, so those are two two organizations that I think come to mind first. Excellent. Okay.
0: So you heard it. If you've got extra mad money or love money, Feeding Matters and Dysphagia Research Society, and um, I love them both. Um, so huzzah for this. Um, Rachel, if somebody has a question and wants to reach you afterwards, how can they
2: contact you? My email is always open. I think people don't realize that about people in research. We really like to hear from you if you need a copy of a paper, if you have an idea, if you have a question, um, reach out to me. My email is hahnr at purdue.edu. And I will be happy to get back to you. I, um, you know, never hear from as many people as I'd love to. So, so please <laughs> an email and, and I really will respond. <laughs> Yay! Okay. And if you if you email me or Instagram me, I will get there. But it might be too much. Your <laughs> so, like... audience than I do. Not that many people are um, reading my publications. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, this is Norm- normally, it's
0: um, honest to God, it's all skisha. So, like, um, sorry, South Carolina Speech Hearing Association, we've been working on baby nut initiatives. So people like message and it's like, it's all, it's all skisha stuff, but like, we are going to make it better. Y'all couldn't see that, but I was like fist bumping in my hand because, like, <laughs> gotcha. so, Yes. I'm sorry. They have non-licensed individuals acting as early interventionists who feel that it is their job to teach people um, and caregivers how their child should eat. And oh, you know, they might have a bachelor's degree in anthropology. Yeah, yeah, that's
2: our that's, social
0: matters. People, we need to yes, that yes. Okay, so on that note, um, hit us up on First Bite Podcast on Instagram, on First Bite Podcast on the Facebook page, and then you know we love it when you um pop on over to First Bite Podcast on the Apple Podcast and hit five stars and leave a kind and gentle review. Rachel, thank you, thank you, thank, thank you.
2: you.
0: It is also- a great to be here as always. Feeding matters be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, this is Michelle Dawson, and I need to update my disclosure statements. So my non-financial disclosures. I actively volunteer with Feeding Matters, National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders, NFOSD, Dysphagia Outreach Project, DOP. I am a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents, CSAP, a past president of the South Carolina Speech Language and Hearing Association, SCISHA, a current board of trustees member with the Communication Disorders Foundation of Virginia, and I am a current member of ASHA, ASHA SIG13, SCISHA, the Speech Language Hearing Association of Virginia, Shav, a member of the National Black Speech Language Hearing Association in Basla, and Dysphagia Research Society, DRS. Additionally, I volunteer with ASHA as the topic chair for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2023 Convention in Boston, and I hope you make it out there. My financial disclosures include receiving compensation for First Bite podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com as well as from additional webinars and for webinars associated with Understanding Dysphagia, which is also a podcast with SpeechTherapyPD.com. And I currently receive a salary from the University of South Carolina in my work as adjunct professor and student services coordinator, and I receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow Truth, Science and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders, as well as compensation for the CEUs associated with it from speechtherapypd.com. So those are my
1: current disclosure
0: statements.
1: Thanks, guys. The views and opinions expressed in today's podcast do not reflect the organizations associated with the speakers and are their views and opinions solely.